Good evening, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I'm Anna Halligan, and tonight I want to share some presentations from a conference that I recently attended in Santa Cruz. It was the 39th Annual Salmonid Restoration Federation Conference, and this conference is focused on a broad range of salmon and watershed restoration topics of concern to restoration practitioners like myself, watershed scientists, fisheries biologists, resource agency personnel, land use planners, and landowners. I was able to bring home the recordings of two of the keynote speakers from the conference. The first speaker was Brooke Thompson, a very impressive Yurok and Karuk Native American from Northern California. She is a master's student at Stanford University in the Environmental Engineering Program and is focusing on water resources and hydrology. And her goal right now is to bring together water rights and Native American knowledge through engineering, public policy, and social action. The title of her presentation was Salmon Fishing, More Than a Sport, How Salmon Are Vital to Native American Culture, Health, and Prosperity. I really enjoyed the perspective that Brooke shared about her relationship with the salmon, and I hope you do as well. Our first speaker is Brooke Thompson. Um, Brooke is a Yurok group Native American from Northern California. She is currently a master's student at Stanford University in the Environmental Engineering Program, focusing on water resources and um, hydrology. In 2020, Brooke graduated from Portland State University's Honors College with a degree in civil engineering and a minor in political science. Brooke has been an intern for the City of Portland's Bureau of Environmental Services, the U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, West York Associate Engineering, State of California Salmon, and the California Water Resources Control Board. Awards and honors include the Gates Millennium Scholar, the United National Indian Tribal Youth 2020-25-25 recipient, and a 2017 Undergraduate American Indian Graduate Center Student of the Year Award. She's been busy. Her goal is to bring together water rights and Native American knowledge through engineering, public policy, and social action. So it's a privilege to introduce to all of you, Brooke Thompson. Good morning, my name is Brooke Thompson, and I'm going to be talking about salmon fishing more than the sport. So I want to talk about my relationship with salmon. I grew up on the Klamath River in Northern California, and I have been involved with salmon since the day I was born. This is my father and my grandfather, Iwak Archie Thompson, where we were living off the reservation in Klamath, California. And you see, even though I was one month old, we have a fishing net in the background because we would hang the fishing nets in our houses. This is me as a young kid. So a lot of my time growing up, I spent salmon fishing with my parents. So here's my dad and my younger cousin slash brother, Tate. My dad gathering up the fishing net. We do gill net fishing in Northern California. Me helping my dad with the salmon and preparing it for the smokehouse. Me at an art fair where I made a print of a salmon I'm very proud of. And this is where my entire life centered around was the river that my ancestors have lived on for 12,000 plus years. And in 2007, when I was 12 years old, I got my fishing, my official first salmon fishing license. And it was the first time I went in a boat all by myself and pulled in the fish on my own. And since then, fishing has been a constant part of my life. It is what I do 
how I spend time with my family when I visit them in Northern California. It's what we eat for dinner as a celebration for coming home. It's what we eat at weddings, at funerals. It's a constant part of our life. And it's a generational part of our life. So, for example, this is my cousin Pete, who's showing his kids how to fish. And this is where he spends a lot of his time with his children. And this is my uncle Timmy on the bottom right, who's his father, who taught him how to fish. And the person whose hand's on my uncle Timmy's shoulder is my grandpa, Archie Thompson, who's the one who taught him how to fish. And so for me, fishing has been a constant part of my life. It has been what's connected me with my family. It's been where I spent a lot of my best time as a kid in the summer. And it's even how I paid for my school clothes growing up. I sold the salmon on the shores to a middleman and I got enough money to buy, you know, my shirts, my shoes, my pencils for the school year. And there was one particular moment in my life which set me on my current path in academia. And that was the 2002 fish kill, which is something I remember very vividly. I was five years old at the time, so even younger than I was in this picture on the right here. But the fish kill happened the day after one of our healing ceremonies in the tribe. So after a night of being around healing, around family and friends, around good food, from tight hugs from family and laughter, I came out the morning after a five-year-old girl on the Klamath River early morning, and we started hearing rumors about the water and that we had to come out and see what was happening. And this is what I saw as that seven-year-old girl is these piles and piles of dead salmon rotting on the shore. And I remember holding my mom's hand and really not understanding what was happening here. For me, someone who, when we catch a salmon, we pray for every single salmon, and we have a very tight connection with the salmon, seeing something like this is a massacre to me. It is completely devastating. And even at the time when I knew something felt deeply wrong to me in the world and with myself, I didn't quite grasp the entire dilemma, I guess, we were about to face and the adversity my tribe was going to face. But for me personally, what I knew is these salmon were connected to me. They were my family as well. And so for me, this was like seeing my family massacred in front of me because it was also the death of ties to my ancestors. My ancestors for thousands of years, my great-great-great-grandparents, despite not knowing me, were managing these salmon and living to keep each other alive in order for me to have the salmon when I grew up so I could live a healthy life. And so I could pass that on to my great-grandchildren and my great-great-grandchildren. So for me, having these same salmon whose descendants knew my ancestors and had a relationship with them, having that all severed within the night when they were just alive the day before is so devastating to me. And you can see the decline in our salmon through some of the images I took this last year. This was a fishing dock on the left-hand side that me and my dad built by hand. We put this dock together with scrap material and we fished off of this for years. This is it dried up on the shore just last year. This is our fishing cabin. This is where the door is supposed to be to the fishing cabin. It's completely overgrown. Our boat deck is, our ramp is rotted out, rusted out. 
The boats have water in it. They're just not being used for so long because we keep expecting to have a good salmon year. We want to, we hope for it, but it just hasn't come. And it keeps getting worse and worse. And that's especially hard for me to imagine as someone who went from catching 130 plus salmon a day having to tie up my net and stop because there's too many salmon for me to process respectfully to having no salmon several years in a row. And that's even what I saw as a kid was different than what my grandfather saw. He was born in 1919 and he saw so many salmon you could walk across the river on their backs. And so for me growing up on the Klamath River where I got to swim in it, where it was my place to play, it was my home, it was my connection, it's our transportation from village to village. Seeing the signs about the blue-green algae in the Klamath River no longer supposed to be swimming or wading in the water, you're supposed to keep your pets away, and you're supposed to wash your hands after you touch the water pretty much, which is kind of impossible because it's not like there's a lot of hand-washing stations near the water. And yet so much of our lives surrounded around the water, it's very hard for me to know that my younger cousins and relatives will get the chance that I did to play in the water and live out that same life, or even the chance I never got that my grandfather had, where he was gathering most of his food from the water. And even here on the top right, you see a dead salmon fry that I found when I was in a canoe last year. And you just see this every single year now. It's just like the dead salmon in the river in the springtime. And so the article in the middle is about how we had five times where our fishery was canceled in a row. And I want to talk about some of the reasons this is happening. The issue with the salmon in the Klamath River is sometimes what we call death of a thousand paper cuts. We have so many issues facing it all at once. But one of the bigger issues we're facing right now and have opportunity to change is the dams on the Klamath River. So I'm sure many people know about this, but four out of the six dams on the Klamath River are planned to be removed. The lowest one is Iron Gate Dam, which is on the left there. Iron Gate Dam, when they built it, they didn't require fish passage because they said that having hatchery fish or having hatchery just below the dam was going to repopulate the salmon population they were going to lose, um, which there has been seen to be multiple issues with hatchery salmon populations versus wild ones and sometimes out competing. And so that's not a real long-term solution. And for me, I thought these dams were going to be removed in 2020 and that time keeps getting pressed back. but. The harm to the salmon is exponential as we keep pressing back this time frame. And then there's also the agriculture stream. The farmers, the cows, and the nitrogen and phosphorus from there that runs into the water makes these blue-green algae blooms in addition to the low flows, so low dissolved oxygen because of the hotter water, which also leads to more spreading of disease, and also the nitrogen and phosphorus, the overnutrients leads to these allergy blooms that affect us on a daily life. And like, as a kid, I remember these huge sheets of algae come floating down the river when they release the dam flows from the water. And I just knew that algae was bad as a kid. And I remember I used to just take a really long stick, I find, and just shovel it in the river and try to take out as much algae as I could physically, thinking that maybe I could make a difference that way. Because I knew it was harmful for us and our fish. And it even makes it hard to fish because the algae and the moss gets tangled up on our nets. And it makes a real workout for us. It makes the nets like hundreds of pounds to pull in. And then you have to spend all this time taking the moss out by hand or buying a pressure washer or paying someone to use their pressure washer to get it out. 
because the salmon can see the moss in the nets and then avoid it. Yeah, and then the warm stagnant water behind the dams creates many issues too. And keeping this in mind that we're moving these dams is important because a lot of times dams are considered green energy sources and renewable energy. And the Department of Water Resources, their plan for long-term sustainability right now when it comes to renewable energy is creating more dams in California, especially prepare for droughts. So remembering not to always take them at face value. And there's many ways we can improve dams and especially since these ones were built but they're not a completely green energy fix that's beneficial for everyone. There are effects for salmon populations. And honestly, there's not as much research as there should be on fish passages even now. I mean, I'm sure people here have seen like the salmon cannon, um, where they shoot a salmon through a tube over a dam. <laughs> and that's not super realistic, I feel like for most dams, but the there needs to be more research on it, and that's one of the things I talk about at Stanford is how we have this lack of knowledge and but also the lack of funding for this kind of information for these hydroelectric dams, despite it being something we're moving towards in California. Oh, and then this is also a book I just like if anyone hasn't heard it, King of Fish Sand. Um, but I talked a little bit about my history, but I want to get a little bit, a few steps back for those of us in California because I feel like I wasn't taught the accurate history of Northern California in my history classes and I had to learn it in college myself. So in case anyone doesn't know, the at least the Purdue tribe has been around in California for about 12,000 years, if not more. And to get an idea of when we started having these issues, and I measured this out into the map, that tiny square on the top right is where we've had contact with outsiders or Europeans or Western culture. So the gold rush in California really took off in 1849, and within the first two months of that, 100,000 Native Americans died. And within the first 20 years, 80% of Native Americans in California were murdered and killed. In 1851 was the Yurok tribe's first official contact on paper. So people were coming up because of the gold rush to our area. And many people don't know this, but in the 1850 to 1870, there's actually Native Californian native slave trade. And that took place in centers like San Francisco. And we were purposely exterminated. The picture on the top left is of gold miners murdering indigenous people. Our first governor of California in 1851 said, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct. Must be expected. And then in 1911, the first dam is built on the Klamath River. So I, I bring this up because a lot of times in indigenous ways of thinking, we have a much longer time phrase um, or state of thinking. And you can see this even in our language. Our language has different lengths of time than the English language does because English language has past tense, present tense, and future tense, but the Europe language talks about very, very long ago, very long ago, a little while ago, happening now, continuously happening now, in the future, and so on. And so even through, through our language, it changes the way we think, and we think on a larger time scale. And then giving in even more into the nitty gritty of it, Right, we have 1851 with the first contacts. 
the cultural aspect could be um, gives sense of purpose, self-esteem, and community building. So for us, that could be the first salmon ceremony, which the Yurok tribe doesn't hold anymore. But all our ceremonies have salmon involved and are centered around salmon. And it's even just how we treat the salmon is a cultural part of our community, like how I pray for each salmon I catch. And the consideration we give to the salmon and the water as having personhood and not being below us as people, but being on the same level and needing to be treated with respect. Mental health, so better physical health if you have good mental health, improved mood, better relationships with help with community. And the example of mental health is participating in the ceremonies, which is a cultural aspect, where you are with your community. So for me, that's fasting with my family and taking that time to think about the food that we do have, my appreciation for it. We do dances to heal the world, so thinking about not only myself, but the larger context of the world and how I can help and what my part is in that and thinking and reflecting on who I am as an indigenous person and as a Californian. And then community, which gives belonging, support, and purpose. And an example of this is fishing together. Like when I was with my dad and my grandpa fishing, when I spent time with my cousins was fishing, all of these are so centered around the water and thus the salmon. Because when we don't have these aspects, when, for example, the salmon have started to go away, we started having spikes in suicide rates. And we're worried about suicide rates now because one of the things that happens is we lose the economic income, for example. I, we cannot afford the same salmon that we catch in the river. I've seen the same salmon I've caught, which I sold to a middleman for 2 to $5 a pound, selling from 20 to $30 a pound at markets in Portland, Oregon. I could never afford that. And having that taken away from me means that you have to either, if you're living in the reservation, you're going to drive either to Eureka or Arcata, you know, two hours south, and then have to do the round trip back if you have a good working car or the half hour north if the road's open in Crescent City to get your food. And because you're not wanting to make that trip every day, it's not like driving down the street to your local Whole Foods, right? You have to get food that stays a long time and is non-perishable and that you have money to afford. And so that means, you know, for me growing up, there's like cheap hot dogs, canned fruits, the top ramen. Honestly, the top ramen was kind of like a bougie thing for me growing up, but you know, I, I like lived on like commodity type food growing up and the most basics, which is not the healthy food for you. It hurts you long term and leads to really high rates of cardiovascular and blood pressure diseases. Where now we see that in general, 42.3% of American Indian adults are obese. 26.2% of Indians have high blood pressure. Native American women have higher percentages of smoking related deaths. Um, being Caucasian women, and American Indians are 2.4 times more likely than Caucasian adults to be diagnosed with diabetes. And over 50% of American Indian adults do not meet the 2008 Federal Physical Activity Guidelines. And so it really takes that physical toll. When you don't have the economy, you have to leave to go somewhere else. There's like hardly any jobs on the reservation. And unless you're working for the tribe, you don't get work, or unless you're working construction. But even then, you have to move to other places constantly. And when we're not spending that time together as a family, you have your parents leave for work, 
then you're not spending that time together, you're losing those connections, you're losing that sense of family and culture. Because when you're working in the outside world, it's not like we get a lot of time off. I didn't get time off in school to go to ceremony, which then hurts my mental and cultural health and my community health, because I'm not spending that time with my family and my tribe. And I know a lot of other workplaces are like that. They're not going to just let you leave for a week unless you have vacation time you want to take up. And these are some articles on the bottom right about the suicides. The Europe tribe had a state of emergency in 2016 after several suicides happened at once. And I definitely think the loss of our culture, community, has led, and the physical well-being has led to a lot of these suicides, or at least a part of it. Because then also, right, if you're not getting that physical exercise and that nutrition from the salmon, you're not getting those endorphins, you're getting more stress, and you also see your family members die from these preventable diseases. I have been to more funerals than I can count. It's at least a seasonal thing for me, if not every few months. And it gets to weigh a lot on you after time, especially when it's people that are, you know, who are my age at the time or only slightly older than me, who are dying from reasons they should not die from. And this is, to me, all connected to the land and the water and the salmon. And so I was talking about the food part. Like, this is how we have our food traditionally, is we have it on these sticks. And if you never had fish on sticks before like this, this is absolutely the best way to have salmon, no doubt. You need to try it at least sometime in your life. You're welcome to come to our salmon festival sometime if we have salmon <laughs> and try some. Or we smoke it for over the winter in the smokehouses. And we do this with our other fish too, like eels and sturgeon. And this is my grandfather also checking the smokehouse when I was younger. And this is us cleaning the sticks. That's also a pro tip. The best part of these fish sticks is when you take off the salmon, the part left behind on the sticks tastes the best. And you're also cleaning it at the same time. So if you go there, ask to clean up and get the sticks and then just munch on those. But for me, this is, you know, eating the salmon has been such a big part of my life. I know my grandma, my grandma's white, she was really concerned with me as a kid because my dad gave me a full jar of smoked salmon and I ate the whole thing in one sitting. <laughs> but now I have this issue where I don't want to even let go of the salmon that's in my fridge. I have a few cans of salmon and I, they might go bad because I get so afraid to eat it because I think to myself, what is this the last time I have the salmon? And what this, or even when family members prepare, like what if this is the last time I have the salmon that my cousin made for me, that she put all this love and attention in for me? And this is gonna be the last connection of affection I have from her. And so it's very hard for me because I love the salmon, I want to keep eating it, I want to be here, but the, the fact that I'm so uncertain about the future makes it hard for me on a daily basis. And I even see kids who weren't alive during the fish kill who didn't see that happen. And they get anxiety each year from the generational trauma from people like me and their elders who did experience it happen and see their fear about the salmon disappearing. And so that fear is passed on and that stress and anxiety is passed on to our kids. So again, for me, loss of salmon means loss of life. And the Kuruk tribe diabetes, and this is the 2005-2016 study, is 21% above the US average. Heart disease is 40% above the US average. The first appearance of diabetes in the Kuruk tribe happened in the 70s, remembering the last salmon was put in in 1962. Mental, emotional, cultural, and spiritual health 
benefits of traditional foods declines. 72.44% respondents rarely or never had access to native foods in the survey they did. Yet, 44.91% of households said they get uh, some form of food from hunting, fishing, or gathering. So it's not from a lack of wanting, it's just from a lack of having. And this is to say that we need to spend extra attention and keep an eye on indigenous nations because we're the ones that face the first consequences of climate change. We're extra vulnerable. There's about 5% of the world's population who are identified as indigenous, which is about 370 million people. There is not a single part in the world on a coastline where indigenous people do not live. There is 27 million people in nearly 2,000 communities in 87 countries who are on coastlines. Agriculture, there's a loss of food sources and economic support with climate change for our communities. And also with the sea level rise, I've met other indigenous people who lost their funeral grounds, their homelands, their traditional dancing grounds because of the sea level rise already, especially on small island nations. And so as a coastal and river person, this is something I'm also very fearful of. Because a lot of, again, all our towns and ceremonies are along the river itself. Deforestation, indigenous people and local communities manage at least 24% of the world's forests. Biodiversity, indigenous peoples protect 80% of the Earth's biodiversity. And this is something to keep in mind because Again, we've had these solutions for such a long time. We've been living in the U.S. for thousands and thousands of years with no issue and living in harmony with the environment where it's not just the environment did well despite us being there, but the environment flourished because we were there and because we were working together. So to me, when we're looking at these solutions for climate change, it's confusing to me when we only have so many years of data, why we're looking at these new resources, new technologies, new management systems. When we've had these systems that worked for thousands of years, but because of this past of seeing indigenous people as dumb, as lesser, and you can see this even in Hollywood, in the media, many of us have probably consumed with like Peter Pan, Pocahontas, The Need in the Cover, Gunsmoke Bonanza, which I all grew up with, they do a thing called Indian speak, where they speak broken, slow English. And that was actually to make us seem like foreigners in our own country. And according to the Harvard Implicit Bias Study, a majority of Americans see Native Americans as foreign and not American. And so we've been treated as foreigners on our own land and seen as lesser and dumb and primitive when we had complex and when we had complex ways of management that was backed up by tons of data that was passed down to us, and yet we as a state, we as governments, we as nonprofits have not been utilizing it to the way we should be. Um, and this is something I just wanted to really quickly press about a bill that's coming up to have a tribal representative on the water board. You have till the 28th if you want to look this up. It's AB 2108. But, yeah, sorry for that short aside. But this is just all to say that the effects of pollution do not stop at state lines, borders, or generations. And I say this because it's hard for us on the Klamath River because a lot of what's happening upriver affects us downriver. And, but we don't have the voting power in Oregon to make the decisions up there. We don't have 
That's not our legislation. That's not who gets to make decisions. But yet it's affecting us very greatly. And so we need to push past some of those pretend borderlines and realize that all these rivers and water systems are interconnected and that we need those connections outside of California too to benefit California water and salmon. But also that we are all downriver people at some point and we, as a voice for the land, must prevent harm at its source. And for me, that's being a Yurok citizen, which translates, the word Yurok translates to downriver person. So for me, there is things we can do. It's not a hopeless situation with our salmon. We have the knowledge, we have the data now, we have the science. It just needs, for me, more indigenous and cultural leadership on our parts, and also more voting power to vote those out of office who aren't taking this water rights seriously. Because we need to not only think about the next few years for California, but we need to start thinking about our next few hundred years of California water health and management. So, I'm Brooke Thompson, and thank you so much for listening to me this morning. The next speaker is Sean Hayes, who is a researcher working for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Northeast Fisheries Science Center, where he is supervising the teams managing NOAA's Endangered Species Act and Marine Mammal Protection Act-based research portfolio, including salmon, marine mammal, and sea turtle research programs. His presentation is titled, Answering the Question Most of Us Are Afraid to Ask in Southern Salmon Restoration. Why bother? Sean Hayes grew up on a sheep farm in upstate New York. Sean Hayes, no. <laughs> and then went to school for a really long time. After school, he found the perfect career combination of service and science when he started working for NOAA Fisheries in 2001. Today, he is currently the head of protective species research at the Northeast Fisheries Science Center in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. He has studied a broad range of salmon and marine mammal species and loves using science to address seemingly impossible management challenges. He has become increasingly fascinated by the social power of key species, particularly salmon, to influence key societal issues, and will be sharing some of those observations today. Please welcome back to Santa Cruz, Sean Hayes. Um, it's an honor to be back here today, um, real privilege, a privilege to be speaking to you guys. Um, hopefully I'll still have your respect at the end of this talk. Uh, my intent is to push buttons, challenge norms, and, and make people ask questions that I think we need to be asking to have better success than we're currently having. That being said, why don't we just get the uh, first disclosure out of the way so hopefully I don't get fired at the end of the talk. Um, um, but moving forward, um, I do want to thank my co-authors. This talk is, it's partly the ramblings of a guy who's been sitting in his living room for two years and not a lot of other people to talk to, but um, I have actually had some really, really good conversations with many of you in this room over the years, but also um, Stephanie Carlson and John Kosick and Brian Kluwer, where we all have a, a paper coming out on, on thinking about salmon recovery, salmon, southern salmon recovery in the context of this um, management framework that I'll be talking about later in the presentation. So that's the other caveat for them. They saw the slides, but they never saw me give this, so they are also not fully responsible. Um, so fish passage um, and the wave of European advancement. I also thought about, um, like Brooke thought about David Montgomery's um, salmon and king fish. Um, we've done a great job of screwing up things as we've advanced west. 
Um, so these are dams in Maine, dams in, in California. Um, fish passage is obviously an issue. I'm just going to be going through the challenges that, that salmon has um, in the context of the title. So um, forest fire, climate change, and then this is a sort of a, a rough approximation of Atlantic salmon populations in the East Coast. I'm an Atlantic salmon guy now, so two um, that uh, my colleague John Kosick put together. And you can basically change the species on this and have the same story for East Coast or West Coast. These are your, your four age drivers, habitat, hatcheries, harvest, hydropower, and then you've got the, the three natures of the, the apocalyptic climate change horsemen of high seas, regime shifts, heat, and H2O, wetter and drier. And then, you know, Brooke, having Brooke go this morning was really, really helpful. There's just the reality that you know, we've been trying to fix all this with Western management principles and, and distributed efforts. And, and I'm not really sure that that's been that effective. And it's, I think there's a lot to be thinking about how we've not just lost I will admit, when I started this job, which is ironically the, the year of the um, Klamath um, thing, was when I first became a salmon biologist for the National Marine Fisheries Service. Um, in the, really in the 20 intervening years, I've really just sort of thought about the loss of physical rivers, and it's really only through conversations with my colleagues recently and that I really started becoming aware of how the human management that was happening in these systems that was an integrated part of them that we've lost. So, and then I've talked about a bunch of issues, but a lot of the issues are all central down to one thing. I, I work on a lot of protected species issues, and at the end of the day, they all come down to this. This is a, a human population estimate. Um, so, what, but it's a number, right? It's really hard to comprehend. And I, I actually made a little video of this counter um, on this day, which was about three weeks before the world really shut down. Um, in that interim, 15 million people have died of, of COVID. Um, but in that same time, when if you go look at that counter earlier this week, the new population estimate is 7.9 billion people, which means that since the beginning of COVID, the global population has increased by a quarter of a billion people, which means COVID hasn't even been a roadmap, a blip on the of the human population growth challenge, which is what all of our protected species and ecosystems face. So just think about that as a, it's not just a number, it's a rate, and it's not slowing down. And I have contributed to that. I have a three and a half year old and, and a, another daughter due in, in August, and my Irish guilt sort of kills me on, on that um, every day in terms of my love for my children and, and family and, and how we move forward with preserving the ecosystems. So outlook not so good. About, Three and a half years ago, I was at a meeting um, in northern Maine with all of my state and federal agency colleagues on Atlantic Salmon. And at a low point in the meeting, I, I sort of asked the room for, raise your hand if you think if everyone in this room does their jobs really well, that Atlantic Salmon have a good chance of recovering. And so before I tell you what the answer was, I'm gonna ask you, raise your hand in this room, if you think our, our CCC coho, winter run chinook, and southern sea lion stocks have a good chance of recovering if we all do our jobs just really well. I got two more hands than the last time, but there's 200 more people in the room, so same story. So, so it's a tough challenge. Why are we here? Why are we trying? 
Um, and so let's talk a little bit about biology. Um, so my early training was in evolutionary theory and evolutionary biology. There's this principle that species sort of evolve to be optimal for the habitat that they live in over time. And this is a long time period. And there's this concept of evolutionary stable straight state or um, evolutionary stable strategy. And the idea is basically just that when a species, species is well adapted to its habitat, then, then it's hard for another species to displace it. Um, so genealogically, and I'm probably going to get yelled at that I really don't know what's going on. I read a couple of geology papers and prep for this talk. Um, the last glacial ice age peaked about 20,000 years ago, and then sea level is about 120 meters lower than it is today. Um, interestingly, we have really steep shorelines because of that, and probably didn't have a lot of coastal estuarine habitat. So, fast forwarding, um, sea level rise with the glacial retreat peaked about 5,000 BC until we started warming up the planet again. Um, but so it's really been roughly for the last 6,000 years that we've had maybe the at least the habitat that salmon have been in along coastal California for maybe the last 6,000 years. And I might be wrong on this. Might be accurate on this, so I apologize. My point is really here is these species have had roughly 6,000 years of fairly stable evolution of ecosystem and, and, and indigenous curation too. So, and then about 1,600 years ago, my ancestors and a lot of your ancestors showed up and started moving west. Um, that was the beginning of European settlement in North Atlantic and salmon habitat on both coasts. Um, you know, but in the interim, we had 60,000 years of evolution before that. Since the 1800s, um, essentially commenced the impact of the four H's, climate change and policy. Um, we have the Endangered Species Act came out in 1973. And then, since then, we really, Robin Wables wrote a seminal paper in 1991 that was based on sort of the genetic principles of, of that fish are genetically distinct. And he asked these three questions and posed these three questions. Like how do we define, you know, obviously we have what we think of as stocks of salmon up and down the coast and ESUs and distinct population segments. Um, and in order to sort of define a, a regional species category for a management unit, he felt we needed to answer these three questions. Um, you know, is the population genetically stink, distinct? Does the population occupy usual or unusual distinct habitats? And does the population show evidence of, of unusual or distinctive Adaptation. And based on that, we basically carved up regions of the coast and said all the fish in this box kind of do the same thing. And then a few hundred miles later, all the fish in that box do the same thing. And they're all evolved to how the habitats worked in this box for the last 6,000 years, more or less. Except that the habitat isn't working that way anymore. And um, we're still trying to force them back into a habitat that isn't working that way anymore, particularly in the southern range. Um, and that's how. You know, I can't really claim the, the saying salmon without rivers, but, but in many respects, that's what we have. Have I depressed you yet? Okay. Um, so, stationarity versus ecological transformation. Most of our management principles and, and policies are based on this concept, concept of stationarity. Um, that the idea is the ecosystem really isn't changing, or that you know, these, on these gray lands, I'm like getting the laser pointer right here, whole thing. the gray lines up there, the ecosystem's changing slow enough that evolutionary processes can keep pace with it, so that species are adapting and evolving. The reality is, is we're in a state of what's being called in the literature ecological transformation, which is rapid or rough transformations, which normal evolutionary processes can't keep pace with. 
So how do we deal with that as managers? Obviously, we set goals. Um, and Stephanie pulled out uh, an idea that she heard um, in, a, in a talk once and that Tom Quinn quoted. And the idea that we know what we're worried about sort of restoring all the things salmon have lost and the challenges of the 4-H's and, and climate change. But then we, maybe we really need to be setting goals not so much on sort of stopping processes that are happening, which are good goals and I think part of the package. But we need to expand our portfolio to be more making decisions based on this idea of what does salmon need. And there was this, uh, I think it's Kelly Spaulding gave a presentation on not so much the 4-H's, but the 4-C's. And the salmon need, and see if I can get it right, clean, hold, complex and clear habitat and water. So if you give them all those four things, then they've got a chance. Um, and in some respects, that means um, going back and restoring. Another means it goes, means going forward with creative solutions. Um, but we have to be honest about a lot of our principles because a lot of our restoration efforts are really, they're based in this mindset of stationary. I had the, the privilege of um, serving as the IEP chief scientist for about four months, about six years ago. Um, at the end of the last drought, I guess, and you know, sitting in the room, I was like, and they were like, oh, when the drought's over, and I was like, I'm not here long, I'm a short timer, so I'm just gonna raise this question. Like, you might wanna stop using that phrase when the drought's come, and you know, the last talk, I think, sort of um, got to that point pretty quickly, so I won't um, reiterate that, but you know, we're moving into a different paradigm. Steve Lindley put this cartoon together, or figure that sort of illustrates the, the decline of Central Valley Chinook. We've had sort of declines in natural production for a long time. We got the idea of, well, we'll just make a hatchery and make up for it, and then things will be fine. And we discovered a little bit about genetics and fitness started declining, and then we started messing with climate, and things got really wonky. And then the reality is, you know, climate sort of gives us these sort of positive moments of hope, but the reality is the trend continues downwards. So that brings us to a little, some ideas and thinking, this isn't new management goals, but uh, the USGS and several people in it and, and other colleagues have been, came up with this idea of recontextualizing the management goals within the framework. And it's less about doing different things, but more being honest with yourself about what your goal is going to achieve and what time frame you're working on. And so it's this paradigm of resist, direct, or accept, or resist, accept, direct, and they call it RAD. Pretty good acronym, I guess. Um, and the idea is, you know, maybe I'll just sort of move forward with examples. I'm trying to remember what my next slide is here. But resist is the idea of essentially restoration. Put things back the way they were. Um, accept is there's elements of accept, accept that are give up. Um, and then there's maybe sort of live with conditions or compromise. And then there's direct, which is maybe we can't go back on something, but maybe there's a solution space where we can move forward um, that's different. So framing these issues, um, it's also what our, we had hours and hours of discussions about whether, as we were trying to ban various strategies into, is this resist or is this direct or accept? And you know, Brian Kluwer is a hydrologist and I'm a, I'm a fish squeezer. And we realized we were talking about different things. He was talking about contextualizing what you were doing with a habitat restoration phenomenon. I was talking about what we were doing with a fish, right? And, and, and you might actually have sort of a resist phenomenon with habitat that's a, a direct phenomenon with the fish or, or vice versa. Um, in either case, the, you know, this graph also sort of lays out your resist situation is you're, you're basically trying to get stay as much with historical conditions as well. So you may have really intense intervention to do that, to go back. Um, except is sort of just letting historical conditions play out. Um, 
and without actually trying to steer it in any way. And then direct is sort of this middle of the road thing, which is where I think there's opportunity, but it requires us rethinking about how we interpret our policies and our scientific goals and strategies. So we've built this cartoon. It's, it's one of those things where you almost want to, there's so much going on that you want to apply for, apologize for like, you know, you have people put the table up and say, I know, don't look at the table, but it's here, you need to see it. Um, so it's, but just working through this, if I can get the laser pointer, let's just go through some historical resist. Might be like pulling out a big dam. Um, and that's really sort of trying to let the river go back to the way it was, right? Except might be, all right, are you really going to give up wine in California or blueberries in Maine? Probably not. Um, and maybe you'll do a little bit of, um, a lot of accept and maybe do some in-channel restoration, but you're not going to, and some buffer zones, but you're not going to take that habitat back. And then, and then there's, you know, there's a UC Davis project, so maybe we're going to direct and we're going to find some sort of co-use solution where the idea of we can maintain our agricultural processes and maybe there's a way to put fish out on things like rice paddies and, and move forward with that. Um, so these are just different ideas to be thinking about. And then, so I'm going to talk about some fish ideas. So resist or direct and accept or direct in the fish concept. So, we, I was part of the Science Center when we were starting with the, the CCC Broodstock program here in the, around 2001, 2002. And in many respects, that was a resist concept. We we're going to have nine year or three cycles of life, you know, rearing coho, dump them back in the streams, and then because there were more coho in the streams, there was going to be more coho in the streams, and we were all going to be happy, hunky dory. Well, it's 20 years later, um, we're We've had some good years with coho, we've had some bad years with coho. It's pretty clear that without that, that system, we wouldn't have coho in the streams, um, but at least in the local systems. But so we're starting to ask the questions so like, well, is this, a, is this a permanent thing? Are we, are we going to accept that coho in the Santa Cruz Mountains basically means having a hatchery, dumping them in there forever? Um, is, is that the purpose for continuing this? Or is there, is there some sort of habitat restoration that's going to happen that'll allow them to persist without it? Or, or maybe it's going to get to the point where the coho just won't even survive if you put them in the streams, in which case, why are we doing this? And then, but, you know, it's, uh-oh, uh-oh. Did I just, hell. <laughs> there we go. Okay, it's back. Um, just keep pushing buttons, I always say. It's kind of what I'm doing with you guys right now. Um, the, thing that I've been thinking about for a while is, you know, we're selecting for neutral markers to maintain populations um, for the way they used to be. The river doesn't exist for the, for the fish the way they used to be, and in the meantime, we're perpetually repeating their life cycles in hatcheries, and, and they're undergoing artificial selection instead of natural selection. You know, we're trying to maximize having the footprint on the habitat as much as possible, um, but we don't, you know, we're managing basically for neutral markers. So then, you have this, you know, it's time to sort of, you know, challenge the paradigm or do we need some sort of, sort of improved population? Should we be selecting less for neutral markers and historical genotypes? Or is the goal just to have salmon on the habitat? In which case, you know, the work that's come out of UBC with salmon physiology and aerobic scope, maybe we just need to be screening or selecting for the fish that can take the hottest, driest, slowest moving water in the world. Um, and, and, you know, one of my colleagues has even joked about the CRISPR salmon. So, you know, maybe that's an idea, is the goal to just have salmon on the landscape, even if it's not the original one. These are all just ideas, I'm not proposing anything here, right? Just, or maybe we're saving these fish for when, you know, 50 years from now, 
average stream temperature in the Santa Cruz Mountains is 32 degrees Celsius. And, but they're the genotype that might be make, able to make it 200 miles to the north, in which case we're saving them for that, which would mean we'd have to change ESA policy because that would mean changing, moving fish from one ESU to another. Um, so questions that we have to ask and think about, or, or maybe there's a accept that we just put a different fish in there, like a brown trout, or, or even worse, we just stop having salmonids altogether in these systems and something else goes in there. And again, I'm just challenging you guys to think about what do we do. All right, habitat, getting off of fish. Um, Brian put this together, and it's a slide from his paper on all adult, and I hope I said the name, 2022, and it's sort of a cycle of destruction um, from, of how Europeans have sort of moved from um, how we've changed habitats from their sort of natural stage zero, which is the top, and then as we've moved through different things, and we're trying to contextualize this in the, the RAD framework. So this is a lot of California now. You can see this in sort of Central Valley, even coastal areas, Southern California, where we've essentially changed the river from being a river to essentially an agricultural water transport system and or for flood control. And so that's our, our stage one um, manifestation. And so this is sort of the state we're in and we're trying to decide, what do we do about this? Um, do you want to resist, accept, or direct? And so, accept would be to basically do that. Um, we just really can't afford to give up the flow regime, and so we're just going to keep sending the water down there, and it doesn't work for fish, and, and so be it. People like fishing for striped bass, that's, that's, that's what we're going to do. Um, alternatively, there's sort of the baby steps of direct have begun happening, um, and that's the idea of, well, we really can't afford to sort of just undo everything, but there's a little bit of space in the channel and we're going to do some restoration in that. Um, and you can sort of argue about whether that's sort of directing, you're essentially creating a new type of habitat that's more channel constrained. Some, you could also argue that it's resisting. Um, or you can go big or go home with, with full-on resist where you essentially remove humans from the landscape and, and just allow a system to go all the way back to the way it was historically. Or you maybe can't make that decision, but you can move all the way around the wheel, and um, which requires more time, more investment, and a lot of early invent invention or interventions. But you might eventually get to this stage eight on the cycle, where essentially you have such a wide channel and so much buffer that the 90% of the river function maybe is back. All right. So the other thing I should say is so. Um, indigenous values and perspectives versus the RAD framework. And, and this was, I can't take credit for recognizing this issue. This Sherman Oak paper just came out in the last, honestly, month, I think. And the reality is, you know, RAD is this kind of shiny new way maybe we're going to do things and, and it'll get somewhere. But let's not kid ourselves. This is just the next great idea in Western science, which is in management processes, which have been so good for salmon, right? Um, we don't know that it's actually going to be compatible with indigenous stewardship process principles. And, and that conversation really hasn't been had yet. And, and we need to have that and a lot of other conversations um, before we just sort of move forward with this will solve our problem. All right, so why bother? Question is, and I've had a lot of you ask me, are you saying why bother? Or are you saying why bother? Like why we should bother? Um, and I've gone back and forth on this over the last two years, but I can tell you where I am today. Um, first of all, one thing that's always I've always known is whether we succeed or fail here at the southern boundary, we're writing the manual 
for what does and doesn't work. So the science and practices and processes, this is a practice. Restoration and conservation is a practice. We are making it up as we go along, and we don't really know what will or won't work. And so even if we do fail locally at the Southern Range, it may be that we learned something that saves salmon 1, 200, 500 miles up the coast um, before we can finally master and conquer and reverse climate change. Quitting is easy. It's really easy. And if you start doing it, it sets a precedent. So what I've always said, if we don't draw the line in the sand here, we'll never draw the line. You know, I jumped there a little bit. So that's one point I have. The other thing is this takes time, so patience. I uh, thought about the, I've had the pleasure of seeing salmon spawn about the historical Ella dams. It's pretty amazing. Um, but you have to think about the time frame in which that occurred. In the 80s, we kind of knew things were bad. In 92, Congress authorized the removal of the dams. It took 20 years before removal actually began. My colleague George Pess is up there, and he's saying we're really just starting to begin, begin seeing signals of recovery. So there were people who worked on that and planned dams. You know, they started working on the paperwork as a Section 7 biologist or whatever earlier in their career. They were still working on that paperwork at the end of their career, and no piece of concrete had actually moved. So we have to be patient, um, really patient. And then the Native communities protested even going up in the first place. If you want to talk about patience, you don't have the right to quit. So on that note, um, this is something I've been struggling with. The Native populations, it's not just the Elwha Dam in the early 1900s that went in. You saw Brooks talk this morning. This is something they've been living with and working with and the impacts of my European ancestors on, on their country and land for several hundred years now. Um, this is not just a, a salmon issue for salmon, this is a, a justice issue, right? Um, so that's the, another reason why we don't quit. Well, that's all the time we have. This is the Ecology Hour. I'm Anna Halligan, and thanks for tuning in. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.